Okay, welcome to A Pint with Shoni B. I've got a very interesting guest, a very famous Mexican architect called Armando Ramos, who works for a company called Diverse Projects. He's got a very interesting story, interesting ideas. We, we, we met at a party um, over the weekend and we're talking for quite some time about, you know, the role of people who have ideas and how we feel governments don't tend to tap into these brains when they're trying to solve big social problems, of which there are many around the world right now. So welcome to the podcast, Armando Ramos. Thank you. Before we start, I don't know an awful lot about your company, uh, Diverse Projects. Tell me a bit about what you're doing right now, and then we might go back and see how you got to here. Great. Uh, we're a very new company. We started a year ago. Um, my partner is was born in Denver, practiced in New York for 20 years. He lives in Mexico. Okay. I live in New York, so that's sort of odd. We consider ourselves a Mexican-American firm. Okay. So we both had the experience of working in Mexico and the United States for, for quite a long time. Do you do architecture projects for Mexico, for firms that are based here going into Mexico, or for the other way around, or both? No, both. We both. do both, and at the moment we also have projects in Colombia. That's, that's part of the idea, is uh, bringing the best of each country to each other, each other, and, and, and other parts of the world. I mean, we're thinking outside the box. One of the things that we're doing right now is we're proposing governments to do certain things to make their cities better. And right. one of the latest things we did was we figured that political campaigns cost a fortune. Mm -hmm. For example, somebody who's run, running for governor of a state in Mexico spends. Forty million dollars. Yes, I mean that's outrageous. Yeah. President of the U.S. I think it's like a billion dollars. Oh, it's more. Other. It's more. Yeah, when you take into it's crazy. Yeah, and what they produce is just rubbish. It's garbage. Mm. They produce advertising. Yeah, they produce T-shirts, stickers. Yeah, badges. Badges and visual, visual shit. I mean yeah. these billboards, you know, with some messages. And what's interesting is they don't produce ideas of substance because they have to be running around trying to get votes. Yes. They are all saying the same thing. We're going to make quality of life, health, jobs, tax, tax exactly. Yeah. And they don't, they don't really have a, a, a concrete idea. No, they, they don't. <laughs> we convinced um, a campaign donor to go in with us and, and invest. Instead of buying 10,000 T-shirts, said, okay, give us that amount of money. We'll produce three ideas for the state of Hermosillo, northern Mexico, where with Arizona. We'll invest also part of our money. Okay. Hermosillo has the most obese state in Mexico. Mexico is now the most obese I country know. in the world. I know. There's not enough public space in Hermosillo. They're lacking that. Mm -hmm. And then their biggest cultural uh, center for performances is 800 seats. With 800 seats, you cannot really bring big stuff. You can't. Right. And, okay. and they're really lacking uh, cultural institutions and cultural programming. So we came in, we saw the potential. I, I drove around for three days and I proposed that we did an open-air auditorium right right in the desert because as a backdrop, having the desert is beautiful. Yeah. beautiful it's, it's really beautiful for 5,000 people. Then you can start having cultural exchanges with yes. uh, other states and with, certainly with Mexico City. We proposed this abandoned river. Water hasn't flown through it in 40 years. It's like the LA River. Yeah. You have 10,000 government employees in front of it. You have a museum and then you have a house of culture that they're completely disconnected and a big shopping center. But people go there 
is they go on the weekends to the, to the, to the mall because it's air-conditioned. We propose to do a linear park, sort of like the Highland but on the river, mm-hmm. and then fill it with programming, open-air library, hydroponics, uh, water collection, jogging, cycling, right. yes. and then a bridge to connect these three institutions to try to make people go out and walk and also feed these 10,000 government employees. The third one we proposed was to remodel the state gym. The state gym is it's got an old basketball stadium, also very limited in capacity. It's got 2,000 seats. We proposed to make it 5,000 seats and then to do juice bar and, and uh, uh, one of those walls where you can hike and, and then a gym. And again, trying to motivate health, which state needs. So we did a, an infographic about why the state needs all of these things. And we did a brochure that's foldable to give to people. Right now we're calling it architectural propaganda. And I think great it makes name. a lot that's of a sense. Name, yeah. I, I think so, you yeah. know. And it makes sense too. What we're proposing governments is, why don't you spend a little bit of money on us? Yeah. Generate ideas of substance. If you don't win, those ideas can stay with the state. Yes. And somebody else can take them and develop them if they want. Yes. Or at least you're not creating garbage that is useless for everybody else. You, Do you have know? copyright over these ideas? Uh, unfortunately not. No. It's very hard to copyright architecture. Yeah. The next step is, and we're studying this as well, is how to find the money to do these things. So the, the metro in Mexico City, cost, it was supposed to cost $1.2 billion, it ended up costing $2 billion, and they had to close it a week after they opened it. Yes. The construction was ahead of the project. There was really no project. I mean, it, it was... Is this bureaucracy and bureaucracy corruption? Corruption, okay, okay. Um, lack of planning. Yes, yes. Um, so we're telling governments, campaign donors, fund the ideas. Then, when you come into power, you can access state money to develop the project. Then yes. you can go to federal and, and fund your projects. Have you? I, one of the places I lived, which I was really impressed with, was Singapore. I remember when I first went there in '96. There was a big, huge. There was a big. Tra- there was a big traffic project being done, like a big highway being made and there was a huge sign that said you know this highway uh, is being turned into a super highway to take predicted traffic uh, volumes for 2035 and this was in 1996 and it was like huh like are they that far ahead of things that's 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 how it works yes one of the interesting things singapore did was they lee kuan yu back in the day made politicians one of the highest paid jobs in the state which, of course, everyone laughs at. But what, what ends up happening is mothers and fathers push their children not to law or, or, or medicine. They push them into politics. Right. And when you get into politics, if you're seen to be taking a backhander when you're in one of the highest paid jobs in the land, well, then there's, you know, that's no bueno. You know, so it's, you're out. Is there any solution to it? You have to change the mindset of people. I think it's an educational thing. We've been dealing with corruption for more than 400 years. Yes. It's embedded into the psyche of people I do think there's a solution and, and I think we're getting fed up with that I, I do start to see a change I feel it too yeah all over the world yeah I, I think so when's the election coming when when does it already happened she won so we're... oh she won yeah, right? yeah. okay and so, so when she won now are you are you still in dialogue with her or yeah no, all... we're still in conversations to, to see how, how how they make it happen um, they have to find the funding I, what was your view living under the the last two, like under the Bloomberg regime in New York and, and now de Blasio, like what, what was certainly from the from an outsider's point of view, it always felt that Bloomberg was 
on stuff. He was getting stuff done. I think he invested huge amounts of his own money into the city. But uh, what was your view from the architectural bleachers? It's, it's, I think it's amazing and it's, it's an example because he put an emphasis on design, you're right, and architecture. And you saw the city transform yes. itself. The amount of public parks he added. The High Line. He, the High Line, but, but also he... A lot of spaces were uh, unutilized. On Broadway, for example, these triangles that are there yes. caught between the key convert them to parks or in Brooklyn, also a lot of the waterfront, they turned out to be amazing public spaces. He rezoned, I think, two-thirds of the city. I mean, it's, it's insane. The cycling, the... 420 miles of, of, of cycling lanes. Times Square. Yeah, yeah the, the whole Times Square thing. We, we were talking at the weekend when we met about uh, the refugee crisis in, in, uh, which started last year in 2015 in Syria and, and you know, the, the, the influx of immigrants into, into, uh, into European uh, countries, EU countries. When these refugees were coming in, everyone starts going, well, what about our own homeless? And I, it struck me that there was nobody who was saying, you know, like what you just did, like, well, what if we could build some, you know, low-budget, plastic, durable housing for these people and in, in some of these spaces that lie empty? Why do you think that kind of level of creativity is missing? Because it is kind of missing in so many, in it's so missing. many, so many conversations. I think that people that make these decisions, they're not equipped, they're not, they don't think that way. Yeah. They're, they're not paid to pay that way. They're not paid to think that way. When you take abandoned structures, the concrete is there, the steel structure is there. Mm. Not in your case, but in our case in, in Baja California, the weather is, you know, that's so favorable. I mean, you can just wrap it around in, in that uh, orange plastic you see in constructions and yeah. use it. Yeah. You don't need to finish it putting put windows in. It used to be that for every 10 people that arrived to the border, one crossed nine state. Right. So you got all these people there. Use these structures. Yeah. Do yeah. plastic modules. Do, I mean, yeah. do something creative. House people there. It doesn't feel like that expensive. You know, it feels like something that's doable. You know, that's like the. You know, if you get just everyone singing off the same page, that you could just get this happening. It's totally doable, and then it costs you less than having the structure there just rotting, and then the negative image you give as a country, as a yeah. city. Yeah. I don't know. That's an intangible cost, but if somebody could figure that out. How did you get, so just maybe going back to see how you managed to get here, you, so you're from Mexico City, yeah. what was growing up there like? That's a good question, it's, uh, I grew up part of the year in California and the other part of the year in Mexico City, mainly in Mexico City, and, and I did see a transformation from the population we're now one of the largest, we've been one of the largest cities in the world for quite a while. Yeah. Growing up, it was not that big, but also I saw the transformation from a normal city to an extremely violent city. I mean, it was bad. That's why I left, actually, 15, 16 years ago. So give people a picture of that. Like, was it, we, we're in a kind of a, terrorist world in cities right now where people are jumpy and, and worried about what's going to happen. Like, was it like that all the time? It was. It, uh, it was. I mean, I got robbed at gunpoint, I don't know, four or five times. I, I, I got attempted kidnapping twice. Wow. Um, you know, once you have those events in your life, you become aware of everything that's going on around you the whole time. 
you could drive through the city and see on one side of the of the street luxurious buildings and on the other side the favela sort of yeah. structures yeah like side by side yeah it's, it's i've never seen that contrast anywhere else yeah i'm saying there there isn't but i've never seen it like that i recently met up with some friends um we started talking about when we were 16, 17 and I guess there was a lot of things that I just didn't, re didn't I don't know if I didn't remember or didn't want to remember yeah but as, as they were telling stories it's amazing yeah amount of violence uh, again you're talking about bodyguards guns gangs you're talking about You're being irresponsible and not not really being aware. I don't know if you're aware of danger at that age. So were you were, were you from a kind of prosperous family? Were your were your parents? Yes. What, what do they do? My, my father is a successful builder and, and developer. I mean, yes, we, we were we were guarded. We, we had a great life growing up, but then I started realizing I didn't want to live in fear anymore. Yes, it made no sense to me whatsoever. Is it still like that now today? When you go back? No, it's changed. Right, it's changed. So, I mean, the city has changed so much. Okay, uh, there's been really good initiatives, really bad ones too. But but there's there's been good initiatives. The crime has moved out to other states, other cities. It's become a wonderful city nowadays. Okay, okay. And so, where, so did you go to college in Mexico, or what did you? Where did you? went to college in Mexico City and, and I took my first job in my second semester as an architect so I would go work from let's say 8, 8.30 till 3 and then I would go to, to college from okay. 4 to 10 every day why architecture? because you were young this is when you were about 18 is it right? 18 yes right. okay. I, I decided to be an architect when I was 11 years old why? And I remember being at my parents house and they said you know, come down, the architect is coming, he's going to show us how, what the house is going to look like. Right. And he unrolled this perspective drawing he did by hand and yeah. was just blown away, completely blown away that this man could see the future, imagine the future and draw the future. I love to draw, but seeing how this perspective drawing for the first time completely blew me away and, and I decided right there I mean on, on the spot that that's where I wanted was Frank Lloyd Wright a hero and Johnson and these people were, were they in your Frank Lloyd Wright for sure I've, I've always loved his uh, his architecture and, and I didn't learn much of architecture from that point until I was 18 I really I knew I was in love with it but I didn't necessarily read anything about it I right. When I was 14, I decided to be a musician, so I sort of changed oh. routes. And what did you What did you play? I used to play the drums and got a rock band, and then I decided I was going to be in a band, and that was going to be my future. And were they successful? We, we were starting to gain traction, okay. and, and then you have the usual problems where you know one guy steals the other guy's girlfriend, yeah. the other one has a girlfriend somewhere else, so he just leaves and never yeah. shows to rehearsal. It's always women who break up rock bands, Yoko Ono, if you're listening. <laughs> it's a, one, of, one of the best documentaries I've ever watched and anyone who's listening if you can get your hands on it you, you, probably, you may have seen it which was the it's a two part brilliantly made documentary on Frank Lloyd Wright's okay. life he was very famous when he was young and then he went dark yes. for years and years Correct. and the, the first DVD finishes and the second DVD starts when he's 64 years of age So, so and by the way, in the first DVD, he had like he lost his wife and kids in a, in a murder situation at his at his house, and he he was 
enfant terrible and then he was gone and he was training architects <laughs> and then he had this friend of his uh, who uh, I think felt sorry for him and said I've just bought this land and, and there's a waterfall coming out yes, of it and, uh, that's correct he sent all his little fellas out to plot the entire area and then they came back and they were waiting for him and he did nothing for for ages he just sat there on it and apparently the guy was coming in wherever they were living and it was a four hour drive to Frank Lloyd Wright's studio and (laughs) he took out his thing and he just worked for four hours and by the time the guy arrived he had it and he had every rock and every tree and the result was a, a very famous building that brought him back called um, called Falling Water. Yeah. Correct. The, have you been there? No, I haven't have seen. It. I've just seen. I've just seen it on video. I went yeah. last year. I've always been fascinated with with Wright's architecture. He somehow, I think he understands proportion like nobody else. Right. His spaces are so they can be so intimate, but they can be so grand at the same time. Yeah. And, yeah. And, yeah. And yeah, you're right. That that house is what what you know spawned his career because there were, all this modernists came about, and then he was outdated, and and all this European architects started coming to the U.S. and and then he had no work, and yeah. and Falling Water gave him his his. And then he did the Johnson Wax Building. It's an amazing documentary. You're also a big fan of Gehry, yeah? Big fan of Frank Gehry. I think he uh, revolutionized architecture uh, in the way Picasso revolutionized painting. Yeah. Certainly for me, creatively, I love when things polarize people. Buildings or ads or art or whatever that some people hate and some people love. Because I think that's... When, then you have debate. So what happened then? So you, so you did your college. You were working in an architectural firm. Were you in, in Mexico City? Yes, I was working in Mexico City. And then I was fortunate because my architecture program had five years of, stu- of history of art and architecture. So I studied all these civilizations and masterpieces and buildings so at 23 uh, again because of the violence and security and other things I decided to just go to Europe and move to Europe and try to get a job there which was sort of insane I think just to think that I was going to do that so I packed up left um, traveled through Europe looking at all these great buildings that I've always wanted to see and then I got a small job in in the south of Spain uh, doing Palladio style houses for, for rich people, which I hated. <laughs> um, I really hated that. Then I decided to go back um, to California. Right. And again, everybody told me I was crazy. Everybody says, How are you going to get a job? You don't know anybody there. Yeah. And you've never done anything there. I said, Don't worry, I'll, I'll figure something out. So I went, I did a master's degree, and I, I remember I was running out of money. I think I had money left for two weeks or something like that. Wow. And so the, uh, the, the, the school's uh, principal saw my work and he said, you know, do you, do you need a job? And I said, yes, I do need a job. And like immediately, he said, well, you know, I just came to this position. I surely don't recommend anybody from our school, but I have a friend that is always looking for talented people. And he turned out to have the largest office in San Diego at the time. 120 architects I've never wow. never seen in my life anything like that I really couldn't believe it so I got you know I went there I interviewed um, and I got the job like the next day brilliant I was able to fund my tuition my, yeah my tuition live and, and I learned a lot it was a special moment in San Diego who is this guy now it's called Austin Beam Robbins um, Partners it was a moment when San Diego was turning its downtown into... They were redoing the whole thing. They were yeah. rethinking the gas lamp district. I remember growing up, downtown San Diego was full of homeless people. It was dangerous. Yeah. 
Uh, everybody went to work there and then left. Yeah, it died at night and then. Yeah, because actually in San Diego, it's it started popping up out in this, all those little towns up north, right? Right, right. But I stayed downtown. It's it's kind of cool. I liked it and I love that little trip across to the island and, and all. Oh, all stuff. Coronado Island. Yeah, yeah. yeah they, they did a great job. I was very fortunate to be a part of that moment in, uh, in the history of that city because I saw how you can transform a downtown. Yeah into a live workplace where it's walking oriented yeah. mixed use yeah. uh, the stadium is great right in the middle of the city yeah, yeah. Uh, airports right there as well yeah um, and so how long so then where, when did you decide you were going to do your own thing or I started do, designing houses in Baja California right so I, I I quit and I started doing that and it was 2006 San Diego and Baja California were booming like the rest of the world. There was yeah. condos being built all over. So loads of money coming in. I wouldn't say loads, but m- yeah. money was good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Actually, yeah, I mean, I was... Like, did you... It was your own practice then? My own practice. And then did you have like 20 people working for you? Or? I had a bunch of people and, and it's ironic. I mean, I, I was being more successful than... And I am now, and, and most of my friends at the time doing other things. Yeah, it was. I couldn't believe what was happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then one day, everything collapsed. Clients started calling one by one. Projects were shutting down, and I was again extremely fortunate that I was doing a competition in Mexico City. And I let me backtrack a little bit. I had a client that wanted to do this seventy-story tower in Tijuana. Right, which sounds very surreal. Um, and he said, you know, choose any architect in the world you, you would like to work with. And I said, Frank Gehry, he's like, great, let's call him up. Okay, sure. So he picks up the phone, calls Frank, he arranges a meeting with Frank. And there, there we are sitting down with Frank Gehry, having lunch with him. Wow. At his where was, where? In, in Los Angeles. Los Angeles, right. And I saw, they gave us a tour of the office. Were you starstruck? Oh my God, I, I couldn't believe it. I remember, I, I mean, I was, you know, dressed like any other architect, yeah. dressed in black, and I, yeah. had, I, I used to wear glasses back then. Right. I remember being there, and Frank telling me, are you an architect? You look like an architect. I said, well, <laughs> you look like an architect too, Frank. Uh, just laughed. And so what happened to the project? The project didn't get built, but, but I, I, they gave me this tour of the office, and I saw how they worked, and I fell in love with the way right. they worked. And Frank Gehry's place. Yes, right. and I, like that's exactly how I would like right. to work the process because it's very manual. He doesn't design in a computer. It's it's very very manual, but then it gets translated. And then I was also fascinated by the fact that they could figure out these crazy structures. Like I want to learn that. I need yeah. to learn that. So came back to my office, started researching on their software, their things. And I came across this company called Gary Technologies, which is the sister company that figures all this out. They so figures how to get the fluid movement exactly. and curves and all that stuff he's famous for. Okay. Right. So I called them up and said, I have this competition in Mexico City. Um, I need your help. I, I designed this thing that I really couldn't figure out. I spoke to the CEO and he said, I'll, I'll go down to see you. I said, no, no, don't worry. I'll, I'll go to Los Angeles. I've been there. I've met Frank. So I went there, uh, submitted the competition. We didn't win, but, but we started a relationship and so when 2008 happened and, and, and the crash happened, Stuart, the, the then CEO of Gary Technologies, invited me to work with them. Right. So, you know, that's it's like an amazing yeah. opportunity. Yeah. Of course, yes. Yeah. We brought the company to Mexico again in 2008. We transformed the industry in Mexico. 
because we brought not only software but we brought a know-how, a process. And is that company still there? Or no, I, when, when I quit, they, they closed Mexico, but I also took them to Brazil. Right. They're still in Brazil. And why did you quit? So I fell in love with New York. <laughs> <laughs> Madly in love with New York. And what was the draw? I'm not a big fan. What was no? the draw? No. What was the draw? Maybe DNA, I'm not sure. But um, before landing, I, I mean, I remember I took the red eye from Los Angeles and I remember waking up and looking down and looking at the city and, and Marvel. it was decided I'm, no I'm, I'm, to be fair when I arrived here you get that okay I'm now in the biggest city in the world I'm in the I'm in the place that if the if the Martians land this is where they'll come to you know I agree with that yeah I mean it's so diverse it's so rich it's so unexpected magical I mean it's got everything yeah it was stimulating yes yeah extremely stimulating and I had no idea I was going to learn everything I learned. I mean, it was, it's been painful, but I, had, I didn't know that I was going to grow so much. Just learning from public policy, learning from how the city works, learning from new buildings, learning from other architects, from, from artists, of course. Yes, yeah. Uh, from everyday life. So I was just... I mean, it was very simple. So you were back kind of... You, you were taking a step back just to get re energized sort of thing right? I also wanted to go back to being an architect because I, you know in Gear Technologies it was process it was yeah a lot of business development growing expanding the company to Latin America and it was technology yeah. application into yeah. construction yeah. and it was great to learn that but I wanted to go back to being an architect and so what's happened since you, since you moved here what's, what was the, what, what's your life been like three years ago I decided to to design development because I thought I still think that architects take more control yeah. of the process and ownership we could get better buildings yeah. people making the decisions are not the architects so they cut their budget they do value engineering yeah. they just you know who makes these decisions and how do they make the decisions of, of taking this out of the building or that or, we've lost all the powers architects yeah. what I mean by power is think of the master builder think of the renaissance think of the Gothic cathedrals, the architect would come in and he would be there at site and he yes. would be determining. There was no project managers back there, yes. right? There was no... The, the, I mean, we built all this I'm infrastructure. I'm feeling great parallels with the ad industry here. <laughs> and we built, you know, too many... So many... disciplines around this. To mitigate risk... Supposedly, yeah. but are we really doing that? Do you think there will be another renaissance? I mean, do you think that do you think that beauty has got lost in 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 our cities? Well, to quote Frank Gehry, back to Gary, he he recently said ninety eight percent of what we're building is shit. Yeah, and I agree. And that's the reason I decided to found a design and development company because what's driving architecture today is returns. It's money. Yeah. Period. Yeah, a bunch of people sit in their room make investments and they're like we need to build this as fast and as cheap, cheap as, as possible, possible so we can start getting returns so if you think about the cathedrals what was the driver behind the cathedrals art. it was art it was God yeah glorification of God exactly yeah, yeah. If, if, if they had the mentality we have today we just have a wooden cross with <laughs> pretty much you know a, a shack probably yeah but here's what we gotta think if, if you can calculate the amount of value added around that cathedral, 
if you look at, let's say, Notre Dame in Paris, how much do you think the real estate around it is worth? Yeah, opera has, you know. Exactly. Yeah. So you can create icons, value. Icons. But you need to be, you know, uh, forward thinking. You need to think differently. Yeah. So I partnered up with this financial guy and we said, okay, what if we partner finance and decide? If we can understand each other's world, Yeah. we can do, it would be interesting. I think governments have a role to play here because the people, governments represent the people. There's nobody on the earth who would go, no, I don't, I don't want something like Notre Dame in the center of my city. I don't want, I want something that after I'm dead and gone, people will appreciate and talk about and visit. Who said it always has to be ugly? It doesn't have to be ugly. If you look at what we're building around, Nowadays, it's boxes all around. Before we even sit down and start designing, the rules have been established by public policy, by lawmakers. Yeah. Sometimes these people don't know anything about what we do or, or how to change a city, and, and the, the, the laws are there. Uh, if you put government, economics, and architecture together, I think you can achieve a great thing. Yeah, I agree. But I agree. The, the three of them don't communicate. Yeah. They never see it around the table. I think what we're saying, just to before we finish, is that the reason that is not happening is that the people who are controlling the purse strings, be they public or private sector, don't really have the aesthetic in their head about what's this going to be like in a hundred years' time. You know, we're not. I don't think we're building stuff for a hundred years' time anymore. I don't think we are, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. But also, we as architects need to take more responsibility, and we need to take charge of these things, and we need to start thinking differently, and we need to approach politicians, we need to mm. understand finance better, so it's also our responsibility not to, not just to be sitting you know, in our table drawing magnificent ideas, but yeah. to go out there and, and, and understand. We need to also understand how other industries and how other professionals work in order mm. to communicate with them. Armando, that was a great chat. Uh, we were we were uh, talking, as we said on, on Saturday, about having this chat, and it was great for you to come in and, and have a pint with Shawnee B. And uh, <laughs> I'm wishing you every success in the future. I love the idea. I know some of my friends who are architects will like listening to this show because I think that there's, to me, just as an outsider, there's a germ of, of, a, of revolution or there's a germ of new thinking or new ways of looking at it. And also, I'm a great believer in using creativity to solve solutions. So wishing every luck with the new company and the new projects that you're doing. And maybe you can get the politicians to do actual things instead of talking about them all the time. So thank, thank you for coming on the podcast. <laughs>